good morning. It is good to be here to share God's word with you. Thank you for joining with us on campus and those joining with us online. If you would, open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes. If you're joining with us on campus and you do not have a copy of God's word, I would encourage you to look under the seat that you're sitting in or underneath the seat in front of you. There should be a blue Bible there. I'd encourage you to take that Bible, open up to page 616, 616. If you do have your own Bible and you're too prideful to use the table of contents, you can find the book of Ecclesiastes by opening up in the middle. You should be somewhere around the book of Psalms. Uh, Next book to the right is Proverbs and then Ecclesiastes. Uh, We'll specifically be looking at uh, verses 1 through 11 this morning in the first chapter. This morning we're going to start a new teaching series through the book of Ecclesiastes. The title of our series is The Search for Meaning. The Search uh, for Meaning. And I pray that this would be a time of uh, great help to us, especially for those of us who are followers of Christ. And then also, uh, if, if you've never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this, this book will be uh, one of the ways that God would show you that you need Him. And so before we uh, open up the passage this morning, let us pray. Lord, we come to you this morning uh, just thankful uh, for the ability to come and to worship you, uh, to praise you in the midst of the storms and struggles of life. We thank you for the life-giving word that you've given to us through your Holy Spirit. Uh, Lord, we thank you for life that has been given to us by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, we ask that you meet us where we are today. Lord, let this time in your word uh, be a reminder to us uh, of how important it is to depend on you in all things. And for those who have never received you as Lord and Savior, we pray today that relationship will begin. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, The book of Ecclesiastes is known as one of the wisdom books in the Bible, uh, along with books such as Proverbs, the Song of Solomon, and also uh, the book of Job. Uh, Wisdom literature reminds us, or the wisdom books in the Bible remind us, that we don't have all the answers, uh, but God certainly does. In many ways, when we read through the book of Ecclesiastes together, as we study through it, Uh, You may walk away with thinking, man, this book is really negative. It's very uh, pessimistic. But the book of Ecclesiastes is one of God's gifts to help us live and navigate in a real world. This book is very honest about the difficulties that we will face. And Ecclesiastes is the clear voice of God and the fallenness of this world. It teaches us the importance of pursuing and trusting in the Lord and the constant restlessness we will face when we choose not to. And so maybe as a follower of Christ, you're here today and there's a restlessness that you're experiencing. Is it possible you're restless because you're not truly pursuing and depending on the Lord? Maybe. And if you're here, definitely without a relationship with Jesus, guess what, that's where you're at. You're restless. And again, my prayer is that you will receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 11, and then we'll begin to unpack it. Beginning in, uh, uh, and before I start, there'll be uh, small notes. Uh, this is kind of just a, a, the preface to the book. Uh, so there's a lot that we're going to uncover, but the goal is that it'll at least be able to spark our hearts and our souls to the importance of the truth found in God's Word. Beginning in verse 1, the Scripture says, The words of the preacher the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. 
The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of formal things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. So let's begin to unpack this together. Uh, we'll have some points and then some takeaways from this. Again, this is just a preface to the book, and so there's going to be a lot of questions that you may have, uh, and I'm trusting that the Lord will provide the answers that we need. Uh, beginning in verse 1, again, the scripture says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So we want to make a few observations based on verse 1. 1, the preacher, uh, the word preacher there in the Hebrew means a collector of sentences. And what's interesting about uh, this word is it's a reference to gathering, the gathering of God's people for uh, the purpose of worshiping the Lord. And, and what's even more interesting about that is in the Greek, the word that is used for uh, the gathering of God's people, the church, guess what? The Greek word comes from the word Ecclesiastes. And so, again, it's the gathering of God's people uh, to be under the word of the Lord. And that is a huge praise for us today, to know that we can come under, gather together and come under the word of the Lord is a huge praise for us. The second thing that we look at from an observation standpoint in verse 1 is the phrase son of David. The son of David certainly uh, just references the fact that uh, whoever this uh, writer is comes from the lineage of David. Uh, and then the third thing that is mentioned is the king of Jerusalem. And so it reminds us that uh, the kingdom of Israel was split into two, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, after King Solomon's reign somewhere around 930 B.C., uh, so traditionally, the writer is known as King Solomon. That, when you look at those descriptions, uh, people walk away with the understanding that King Solomon wrote this book. Now the, the question is, why didn't Solomon just come out and say that, right? He does that in Proverbs. He does that in Song of Solomon or Song of Songs, but, but he doesn't do that here. Now we don't know the answer to that, but it appears he is the one that wrote it based on these descriptions and other descriptions that uh, we'll find out in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, but at the very least, it is about him right? Uh, it was possibly written in his old age as he reflected on his life and times that he wandered away from the Lord. And guess what? He did that. He wandered away from the Lord. And it's uh, written again primarily to the people of God as a pastor to his flock, reminding them where the true meaning of life is found. And this is important for us because it reminds us that God is not only concerned about our final destination, he is concerned with how we live, think, and act on the journey towards that final destination. And what is the message that Solomon wants to give us? It's found in verse 2. This is really the theme of the book. He says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. So five times in this one verse, he uses the word vanity. Now let's important for us to understand this word because some translations uh, use the word uh, meaningless and things like that. So it's important for us to understand what is happening here. That word is so significant, by the way, it's, it's used 
in every chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes, except for one chapter, and that's chapter 10. The Hebrew word here means a breath, a vapor, or a mist. And, and because that word means that in the Hebrew, it tells us at least two important things about life. One, life is short, right? It's interesting to note that the Hebrew word vanity in its proper noun form is the word Abel, the, the proper name of Abel. And if you look back at Genesis 4, when Cain, his brother, killed Abel, guess what? Abel's life was what? It was cut short. And so this idea of vanity is a, a reminder to us that life in many ways, is extremely short. The second important thing to gather from this word uh, for vanity is that life is also elusive. It's perplexing. It's difficult. It's, it's hard to understand at times. It's hard to grasp. In other words, why do people you know and love die young, right? Why is it that you can spend your entire life working and toiling at something, a business or whatever, and then all of a sudden it seems to fail? Why can I see something so vividly? I can taste it. I can feel it. But in the end, never truly fully grasp it. I'll illustrate it like this. Life is somewhat like that. You can feel it for just a moment. You can see it. It's vivid. But when you try to grasp it, it only seems to be lost it's like a warm breath on a cold morning. I love that, don't you? We don't get many of those in Charleston, but I love it. It reminds me of growing up in Nebraska where you had that, that all the time. And notice Solomon says something. He says it all is vanity. All is vanity. In the book of Ecclesiastes alone, Solomon says that every effort, pleasure, youthfulness, wealth, desire, popularity, injustice, Future events and the fruit of our labors have a level of what? Vanity to them. Short-lived and elusive. Not one area of our life is not frustrated by this truth. James, the half-brother of Jesus, says it like this in James 4.14. He says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring and what is your life. For you are a mist that happens for a little time, and then it vanishes. So James is talking about the uncertainty of life. You can write the events of your day in pen only to get to the end of the day and wish you did what? You wrote them in pencil. Why? Because it's constantly changing. Things are temporal. And just as life begins, guess what? It quickly ends. And the elusive aspects of life, the idea that we can see it, we can feel it, but we can't fully grasp it, reminds us that we need to begin to look at life according to what God's word says. If you genuinely want to find and experience meaning and purpose in life, you must reorient your perspective on the word of God. To this, Solomon asks a very important question in verse three. He says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Let's make a few observations based on this verse. Uh, the word man is important. It's not the Hebrew word ish, which talks about gender, male. It's actually the Hebrew word for uh, Adam, talking about all humanity. And that word Adam is going to come up towards the end of the sermon, and I pray that you'll be able to uh, connect these dots together. The second observation is the word gain. It's used nine times in this book, and it's only found in this book, and it has the idea of, of uh, what is the net gain. 
after all the work, after all the toil, after all the expenses are ledged out, what is the net gain? The third observation is the word toil. It means labor, difficulty, struggle, work. The fourth observation is the phrase under the sun. Now that phrase can simply refer to just life on this earth, right? It's under the sun. Uh, But it can also refer to life apart from God. Like you're trying to live life apart from God. Ultimate meaning and purpose in life can't be found in the things of this earth. And it cannot be found apart from God. That's what Solomon is driving at. Now why is that the case? And this is where you get your notes out, right? You're ready. Why is it that, that life, true life, meaning and purpose can't be found simply just living on this earth, and it can't certainly not be found apart from God. Why is that the case? He's going to give us three reasons, and he's going to look at nature in many ways. First, nothing seems to change. Nothing seems to change. Verse 4, he says, A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The idea behind the word generation simply means a cycle. No matter how hard you work and struggle, you can't break the cycle of life. Solomon, with all his power, And all his wisdom and wealth, no matter how much he rages against death itself, he can't do what? He can't stop it. And the word placement is interesting. Solomon doesn't say a generation comes and goes. That's typically how we refer to it. Uh, He says a generation goes and comes, meaning there is a constant cycle of one generation replacing another generation. And no matter how hard you try to stop it, we simply can't. And in many ways, it feels like the earth just simply outlives humanity. The same earth we walk on today is the same earth that Abraham, Isaac, Moses, Rahab, Rachel, and Sarah walked on generations ago. Why? Because nothing seems to change. Solomon continues to illustrate this same truth in verse 5. He says, the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to place where it rises. The sun does the same thing every day. And Solomon uses language here to express uh, that the sun is getting tired of the same old work. The word hasten speaks of shortness of breath. The moment the sun goes down, it's working hard to get back up again. And day after day, nothing seems to change. Verse 6, the wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits, the wind returns. Now, typically, we think about the wind blowing from west to east, right? But in Palestine, uh, it was very common for the wind to also blow uh, from north and south. And so, if you think about the wind, the circulation of the wind, it appears that there's great freedom, right? There's freedom to move around. There's movement. It's different than the sun, where the sun just goes up and goes down. The the wind kind of just goes around and around. But guess what the scripture says? The scripture says that freedom isn't really reality. Why? Because it goes back to its circuits, meaning it's just a circle. Just a circle. Why? Because nothing seems to change. Then in verse 7, he says, All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. Now, in Solomon's case, he's probably envisioning the Dead Sea, right? The Dead Sea is landlocked except for in one small location where the Jordan River flows into it. But no matter how much the Jordan River flows into it, guess what? The Dead Sea never seems to be full. Now, he's not referring to evaporation. He's just saying the constant moving of trying to fill something over and over and over again never seems to occur. Why? Because nothing seems to change. The earth, the sun, the winds, and the streams, they existed thousands of years ago, 
and they still exist today. The same winds that blew, the same sun that shined, the same streams that flowed are the same today. All that labor, all that work, all that restlessness, and nothing seems to change. And to that, Solomon says in verse 8, all things are full of weariness. Now he's connecting the dots to humanity. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Everything, including humanity, is tired and weary. Solomon says, we can live this life in all its shortness, in all of its elusiveness, trying to grab everything, trying to satisfy with our mouths and our ears and our eyes, and guess what? We will never, ever be fully satisfied. Why? Because nothing seems to change. The second thing that Solomon talks about is nothing seems to be new. So not only is nothing seemed to change, but nothing seems to be new. He says, and this, this part that, that really bugs us, right? We, we think that there is a sense of newness in life, right? That's what we want. We want things that are new, but the second you buy something that is new, guess what? It's already what? It's already old in many ways. He says in verse 9, he says, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is it will be done. There is what? There is nothing new under the sun. Now, you might be thinking, Solomon, you're wrong here. With all the advancements of technology, there are new things all the time. There's new things every day. But again, the second it's new is the moment that it is old. Solomon is not addressing technology advancements in life. He's talking about the cycle of toil. He's saying no matter what you do, the cycle cannot be broken. And what seems to be gained from all your labor in the end seems like what? It seems like loss. It seems like there is no net game. It just proves that the same old is what? The same old. Solomon even doubles down on this truth. He anticipates the objection that we would have. He says in verse 10, Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new? And his answer is, it has been already in the ages before us. In a world with all its advancements, we know this to be true because no matter how new something is, we always want something more, right? I mean, do you believe that? I mean, think about Christmas, just, just a month ago. All those things that were so new, now you probably don't even remember where some of those things are, right? That's the human nature of us. There's always a sense of loss, not gain. When one thing seems to be conquered, it only leads to another thing that we desire to conquer. The government is still the government. Crime is still crime. Death is still death. And we long for something new, something different. And that's why we play pretend. Do you remember playing pretend as a kid? Some of us still do it today, right? Why do we play pretend? We try to manufacture our own discoveries, our own dreams, and our own fantasies of how life could be, only to find that the cycle of restlessness continues. I mean, think about it. Think about the reality of what the scripture is teaching us. Why is that the case? Because temporal things cannot satisfy an eternal soul. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes is driving at. There is no gain because there's never, thing, never anything fully left over, right? 
Nothing seems to be new. And then he says, nothing seems to be remembered. Nothing seems to be remembered. The great struggle and weight of being forgotten. I mean, let's, again, the book of Ecclesiastes is honest. I mean, we, we work so hard to be remembered. And then the scripture is going to say, only to be forgotten. Solomon closes with these words in verse 11. He says, there is no remembrance of former things, no, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things, yet to be among those who come after. Think about it. Solomon's kingdom, Israel, was in the golden age, but Solomon wanted the people to understand that success and prosperity do not last long. All human accomplishments will one day disappear. Right? We live in a world where today's celebrities are tomorrow's obituaries. Right? We understand that. Even the strongest rulers, the strongest leaders, are only a footnote in history. You think about Joseph in the Old Testament. He's the second in command, right? He's the one that helped the people and the nation not starve to death. And yet, what does the scripture say after he dies? Exodus 1.8, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Seemingly forgotten. Is this not the struggle that every generation faces? The great fear of being forgotten. So what do we do? We fight and struggle to keep the people and the events and the past up and out front. But we know deep down it's only a matter of time where we will be forgotten. Think about your own personal experience. The achievements that you hold on to. For me personally, I look, sports was a massive idol for me growing up. And I go back to Sixth grade, right? Sixth grade, I had the opportunity to play baseball on Rosenblatt Stadium, the original. That has a lot of history in baseball history. There, I was deemed as the second best baseball player in all of Nebraska. That was my idol. In high school, I had the opportunity to play on the state select soccer team. Top two goalkeepers in the state of South Carolina. And guess what? It's going to be forgotten. It's going to be forgotten. All of that toil, all that energy to know that it is only going to be forgotten. And this is the bill of goods sold to us. And we buy into it every day. You do these things. You go to this college. You make this salary. You live in this house. You raise these kids. You contribute to these things in your church, in your society. And then maybe, just maybe, you will actually be the exception to the cycle, to the rule. There's one problem with our need to be known and remembered. The problem is what? Death. That's the problem. And when you die, your story only seems to be forgotten in this world. So in this world, living on this earth, in the shortness of our lives, we are trying to grab and to take control of all the things that just appear to be out of our reach, right? Solomon is writing to the heart. So that begs the question, what am I living for? What am I doing all these things for? All this toil, no gain, just restlessness. And we try to escape the realities of nothing seems to change and nothing seems to be new and nothing seems to be remembered. And we do it in many different ways. This restlessness leads to us drifting into things like unhealthy relationships and unhealthy habits and drugs and alcohol and sex. We try to escape it in our jobs, our education, our achievements. Social media is the place of escape today. Beauty, kids, sports, even family vacations and entertainment. It's the cycle of if only. If only I was prettier or smarter. 
If only I had this job, that car, this athletic ability. If I only had my parents pay for my college. If only I went to college. If only I went to that college, played that instrument, played on that team, got that grade, received that result from the doctor. If only I were more recognized, more loved, more appreciated. If only my kids turned out like this and not like that. If only I were married to that person. If I only had more time, then... How many if-onlys do you have today? We all have them. Again, Solomon's getting to the heart. Solomon had more money and enjoyed more pleasure and possessed more wisdom than anyone else in the world. Yet it all ended. Solomon discovered that having all the wrong things and not the right thing can absolutely destroy you. No matter how much he toiled, labored, and worked to change it, he couldn't. And this is what makes the book of Ecclesiastes so amazing. It teaches us actually how to live under the sun. You see, living under the sun isn't all that there is. And these are the takeaways for today. Again, you may say, man, that's the most depressive, negative message I have ever heard in my life. And that's okay. Because it's true. So here's the takeaways, and they're going to be very, very quick for a purpose. I just, I want your soul to desire and to grab on to what matters the most. Because again, you can live life striving to be similar to Solomon, and have all the wealth and all the education, be number one, and still be empty, empty, empty. So these are the quick takeaways. Lots of scripture, not a whole lot of unpacking, but that's okay because I'm going to trust that you're going to do some of that unpacking for yourself. And again, we're going to spend several months unpacking the biblical truths that we need What are the takeaways? Where nothing seems to change, the gospel reminds us that Jesus changes everything. There is a God who rules over the sun, over the winds, and over the rivers, and over the seas. His name is Jesus. He controls all those cycles. How could this be? Listen to what Jesus says in John 8, 23. He says, he, speaking of Jesus, said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, and I am not of this world. Jesus is greater than Solomon. Jesus enters into the vanity of our world, a world just like Solomon's and just like ours, a a real world full of despair, disease, and death. Guess what? And he conquers all of it. The very thing that Solomon could not do, stop the cycle of death, Jesus stops that cycle. John eleven, twenty five and 26, again, the context here is Lazarus has just died, right? And Jesus said to her, the her here is Martha, Lazarus' sister. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That is the question for you today. Do you believe that? If Jesus hasn't resurrected from the dead, we better just hang it up right? Everything hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus has risen from the dead. 
and it changes everything. That means it gives us a hope in this life and the hope in the life to come. Jesus also completed everything that the Father had sent him to do. When Jesus was nailed on the cross, what does he say in John 19, 30? He says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, what? It is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. That is a great word of victory. All that toil, all that work, it is what? It is accomplished. Net gain, right? When you think about the world that we live in, the fallenness of our world, the curse that was given when sin entered the world in Genesis 3. Guess what? Jesus changes everything. In 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 22, the scripture says, For as by man came death, by man he, also, uh, he has come also uh, the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And so where sin entered the world through the first Adam, Genesis 3, Life came into the world through the second Adam, Jesus Christ. You look at Romans chapter 5, it unpacks it very, very well. And because this is true, the fact that Jesus changes everything, that means that you and I can live this life having our focus and attention not on ourselves, not on the things of this world, but on him and him alone. Why? Because we trust that he is faithful and he is good and his ways are best. In 1 Corinthians 2, 9, the scripture says, But that is written, what no, has seen, what no eye has seen or ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. This means that this world is not the end. This means that we are to set our minds on things above. Colossians 3, 2, set your minds on things above, not on things of this earth. This idea of setting our minds means to dwell on. So that begs the question, in this season of life, what are you dwelling on? Is it your past mistakes? Is it the things of this world? The question isn't what do you want your heart to dwell on? It is what it is, what is it actually dwelling on today? So the scripture is reminding us because Jesus changes everything, we can set our minds on things above. Because Jesus changes everything, it's always a net gain, never a loss, right? Paul says in Philippians 1, 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Jesus changes everything. Secondly, where nothing seems to be new, Jesus makes all things new, right? In the restlessness of this world, Jesus brings in a new word. John 8, 31 and 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Not captivity, but freedom. In a world full of cycles, we are given a new cycle the truth has set us free. How? How is that possible? Man, we're under the new covenant. The new covenant of God's amazing grace through the blood of Jesus. The scripture says in Luke 22, verse 20, and likewise the cup, so Jesus is talking, that likewise the cup after the, they had eaten it, saying, this cup is, that is poured out for you is what? Is the new covenant in my blood. The shed blood of Jesus on the cross is what provides the way of forgiveness of sin and to be united with your creator all through the blood of Christ. We are brought near to our father. We no longer have to be restless. Why? Because we can truly be satisfied in him. We are new creations, right? Second Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
that old frame of mind of what we focused on before. Now we have a new perspective, a new love, new desires, new power. I mean, think about the power that we have today because of the finished work of Christ. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. This is what he has done. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who what? Who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus shows us a new love, does he not? Man, aren't you thankful for the love of Christ? Do you not think that this world is starving for that kind of love? And yet the sad truth be that we, as followers of Christ, we, we've experienced this love, but yet we still find ourselves drifting back to the love of this world. It never, ever will be satisfied. Not only that, man, because of Jesus, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. You know, creation, you read Romans 8. Creation itself is longing for newness, right? And guess what? Jesus brings that newness. Revelation 21 verse 1 says this, Then I, speaking of John, saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And then in verse 5 it says, And he, speaking of Jesus, who has seated on the throne, said, Behold, I am making all things new. The beauty is life's frustrations will one day end. Praise God. Praise God. And then lastly, Jesus will always remember. In a world of cycles, repetitions, frustrations, and longings to be remembered, Jesus reminds us that you will always be remembered. You know, that's, when you think about why Jesus came to this earth. He came so that we can know who? We can know the Father. John 17, verse 3 says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And guess what? The beauty of that relationship means that you will never, ever be forgotten. The scripture talks about the book of life over and over and over again. And we see one of those places in Revelation 3, verse 5. The scripture says, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. This is what Jesus is saying. Now, some people read verse 5, and, and, and they don't walk away with assurance. They, they somehow think that this idea of conquering is resting on me. That is not what the Scripture is teaching us. The Scripture is always teaching us that salvation is always based on the grace of God. The grace of Jesus reminds us that we are overcomers, that we have been given the gift of eternal life, and he will never let us go. Why is that true? Because our salvation is not based on our toil, but it is based on his toil, his work, and he says it is finished. And guess what? Our works will always be remembered in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, that is, be faithful, immovable, don't compromise, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is what? It is not in vain. Praise be to God for that. So even if you pick up Legos for the thousandth time, right? Your work in the Lord is what? It is not in vain. I want you to think about something for just a moment. We really have two choices, right? We can either live simply under the sun, S-U-N, and try to grab and search and, and 
toil and all these things, thinking that those things are going to satisfy us. Or we can choose to live with the Son, S-O-N. Right? We're still going to experience frustrations. Don't get me wrong. You're still going to have moments of toil. That's part of the curse in Genesis 3, right? But praise be to God. In Him, everything changes. Everything is new. And nothing will be forgotten. This is why the people of God should praise the Lord every day. Because those who do not have a relationship with the Lord don't know this rest. They don't know this rest at all, and yet you and I have been gifted by his grace a sense of peace and a sense of rest, a sense of approval and acceptance and meaning and purpose. Why? Because of the S-O-N, Jesus Christ. So let us praise the Lord.